I want to bring us back to this word compelled. Um, remember we said that compelled, it kind of, well, it's quite a compelling word, isn't it, really? It's, um, it talks about having to do something. It talks about obligation. It kind of reminds us of lordship, of kingdom, of rule, about not having a choice but knowing that we have to do um, certain things. And again, this Jesus who is the mediator of God's covenant of love. This Jesus who brings us back into our sonship or daughterhood relationship with our Father. This same God who is passionately committed to a relationship with you. This same God who sees the slightest turn in you and runs towards you and showers you with with, with his kisses, who, who loves on you, who holds you and embraces you, is the same God whose eyes burn like fire. Yeah. It's the same God who stands before you and confronts you with his sharp sword in his hand, and who, when you ask the question, are you on my side or for my enemies, replies, neither. I'm on my side. I'm here for my kingdom. I'm here for my glory. And we realize as we bow before him, it's not about me. So these two things are absolutely true at the same time. That God is absolutely, passionately in love with you, passionately committed towards you, cares with all of his being that you would be restored as his son, as his daughter, and is also the ruler of the universe who reigns and rules in splendor and majesty and who is not to be messed with. Amen. Who is not our mate or our buddy. He's our friend. He's the lover of our souls. But he is not your kind of best buddy that it's kind of like, you know, some kind of irreverent relationship. But he's a majestic king, the king of glory. It is a misunderstanding of grace when we think that because God loves us so much, we can do whatever we want. And like I was kind of saying before, we... we, we struggle with this as Christians in general. We struggle with, it's either kind of one thing or the other. So we kind of, we, we realize, oh, he loves us. And, he, and he's not just trying to wipe us out. And he's not just trying to crush us. He's not the big boot waiting to squash us. He's a God who loves us and he, and he wants to transform us. And he's patient and he's kind with us. And so we end up in this place where we, if we're not careful, we think, oh, well, we can just do whatever we want because he's just so loving and he's just so kind. And I can just live any old how and he just can't resist me because he's so in love with me and I'm the apple of his eye. That's a misunderstanding of grace. We can't just do whatever we want because he is Lord. And he is king. And the good news is that I don't rule and reign. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to try and rule and reign anymore because there's a king who will do a much better job of it than you. That's the gospel. You don't have to try to make what's supposed to happen happen by your wisdom or your goodness or because you're never going to cut it. 
You're always going to fail. But you can be restored to be part of his kingdom. You went off and you did your own thing. You tried to do it your own way, but you squandered everything and you made a mess and you came to your senses and you realized, I need him to be in charge. But rather than being just a hired worker in his grace and in his love, he said, you can be part of what I'm doing again. That does not diminish the fact that he is still king. He's still in charge. In fact, we have a whole book in the Song of Songs of being in love with a king. Of being in an intimate, passionate love relationship with someone who is nevertheless still the king. Shared in one of the times when I preached about um, Jesus, our crucified king, it's a bit like, probably not much, but a little bit like the queen and her husband in the United Kingdom. You see, um, the queen and her husband, I'm sure, you know, fairly close, one would hope. Don't know. We don't see that side of their lives very much, do we? We just have to watch Helen Mirren um, playing the part of the queen. and We don't know what it's like, but, but, but the husband and wife... Sure, at least once in their life. Well, they've got children, haven't they? So they've been in bed together. Um, <laughs> so intimate, okay? I can't believe we just went there. Um, <laughs> and yet, he still has to sing the national anthem. He still has to. You look in any function, she is the only one in that room who's not singing. When the national anthem is played, even her husband, even her children are all stood there to attention singing the national anthem, God save our queen. And in that moment, though she's their mum, she's their sister, she's their, uh, their, their, their wife, their, their intimate relationship, and yet in that moment, she is still their queen. Mm. King Jesus is our brother. He's the lover of our souls. He's a, but he is still our king. Yes. He's still our king. Acts 20 and verse 22 This is why I run out of time, because none of that was in my notes. <laughs> Acts 20 and 22 says this. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So, we're in this covenant of grace and we're not living under law anymore, and it's not all rules and regulations, because we're in the new covenant. We're, you know, Jesus loves us, and we're under grace, and we live by the Spirit. And we love to do away with all that law stuff, because we know we can't live by law. So it's kind of like grace, everyone, live in grace. Come on, let's just be in grace. Um, and it's the Spirit, and we live by the Spirit now. But we need to understand there is still such a thing as being compelled by the Spirit. So being compelled is not incompatible with living in the Spirit. Yeah? So we understand, don't we, that we're not supposed to live by law anymore. We're not supposed to live under the obligation of the written code of the law that brought condemnation, and all it did really was prove that we were sinful. And so we know we're supposed to have been set free from that, and we're supposed to live by grace in the Holy Spirit. But the danger is, if with our flitting from one extreme to the other that we keep talking about, the danger is that we think, great, it does, I can just live any old how now because I'm in the spirit. I live by the spirit. Well, if I don't feel that it's wrong, it's probably okay because I'm in the spirit. But actually, there is such a thing as being compelled by the spirit. There is such a thing as an obligation to what the spirit is saying and doing. 
There is such a thing as not having a choice if I want to follow the Spirit. Now, of course, I have a choice because God doesn't take away my self-control because my choice is, am I going to follow the Spirit or not? Yeah? My choice is, but my choice is not what do I want to do. My choice is, do I want to follow the Spirit or not? Because there are times when the Holy Spirit compels us, where he doesn't give us the option but says, this is the way. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul again. 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul, in this context, is talking about this ministry that God has given all of us of bringing reconciliation between people and God, and he's basically saying, I can't, I can't not do mission. I can't, I can't just sit around and think the world is all about me. I have to go out and share the gospel uh, and, and do the mission of God Christ's love compels me. It makes me. It gives me no option. I'm obligated. I have to do this because of the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit compels us to do things. And God's love compels us. Now, actually, when we stop and think about it, well, the Holy Spirit is God. Okay, we all good with that? Holy Spirit is God. God is love. The Holy Spirit is love. Not, not just, some of you went straight to the answer. Um, show your workings. Um, the Holy Spirit is love. Not just your any old definition of love that you come up with oh, this feels like love, so I can do that. But the Holy Spirit is the proper and right definition of love. God is the proper and right definition of what love is. And the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is love, will compel us. So when we live by the Spirit, there will be times when there isn't, when there aren't options. If we live by the Spirit, there'll be times when it's not just up to you, oh, I might do this, I might do that, or you know, whatever feels good. No, if you live by the Spirit... Don't, because if you have an expectation, okay, we've moved away from living by law, so now it's do what we want, any old how, you're going to be disappointed. Because actually, Jesus made it clear, when you live under the new covenant, your standard of righteousness will not decrease from the old covenant, but will increase. Your standard of holiness will not be less than what the law was able to produce. Your standard of obedience to God will not be less. We're a bit less obedient now because we're in the new covenant. (laughs) And it's all kind of like cool and a bit more relaxed around here because we're not so uptight about rules anymore. No, actually, this new covenant will achieve what the old covenant was never able to do. So actually, living by love in the Holy Spirit 
we will be more compelled than we ever were by the law. Living by love in the Holy Spirit will place greater demands upon our lives than the law ever did. Romans 5 verse 8 says that while God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did he die for us? If you were listening recently in Christ the, um, Christ the crucified king, he died to destroy sin in our lives. He died to destroy sin in our lives. To put those together, God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while you were still a sinner, he destroyed sin in your life. God demonstrates his love for you by destroying sin in your life. God demonstrates his love for you by removing the thing that prevents you being restored to his son, his daughter, where you can live for him and his glory. He deals with that because he loves you so much that he wants you restored as his son and as his daughter. So 1 Peter 1 and verse 14 says this, 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As obedient children. Being a child of God doesn't mean I just do whatever I want to do. Being a child of God means that you are obedient. Titus 2.11 tells us that God's grace, far from saying actually just do whatever you want, God's grace teaches you to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God, the undeserved favor of God in life, in your life, God's smile towards you, God's love towards you, God's passion for you, the fact that God saw you and he saw the slightest turn and run towards you, that is expressed in the fact that he doesn't want ungodliness in your life anymore. He doesn't want you to be a slave to sin any longer. He loves you so much that he rescues you out of that slavery and he sets you free. You can be who you were made to be. You can live a life free from sin. You can be my child. You can be my son. You can be my daughter. You can live as an obedient child in relationship with me. Imagine if that son, you see, the story ended, didn't it, in Luke, when we read that, that story of the lost son, and the story ends with a party and a celebration. Imagine that son, wearing his robe and his ring and his sandals, says, do you know what? I'm off back to the prostitutes. We just, we just assume that doesn't happen, don't we? We assume that from that moment, that son, having been restored from where he fell, having been restored, that he lives and labors together with his father and works together with him and takes on his inheritance in their family business together. But imagine... If he'd say, well, you've done all this, actually, I think I'll go back. Grace, God's favor, what God did for you, and the gift of his Holy Spirit in your life, he teaches you to say no to things that you want. He teaches you to say no to things that you want, to desires that sometimes war and rage within you to temptations that you face, he teaches you because he loves you so much. Not because he's mean, 
Not because he's an angry God. Not because he's a, a miserable father that doesn't like you having fun. But because he loves you. Because he sees your potential. Because he knows what he created you to be. He knows who you are. He knows the true you. The true identity. You are a child of God. You are made to look like your father. You are made to know the joy of perfect, intimate relationship with him. And so he enables you and he empowers you to say no. Remember this picture. We're going to live with this identity. The God who's trying to restrict us, who's trying to compel us, who's holding judgment and, and, and fear over us. Or is our primary, because those things are true, God will punish wickedness. Jesus even appeals to people on the basis of, if you do not repent, there are consequences to come. But what's the primary motivator that we're going to live by? What's the primary identity that we're going to live our lives as children of God? Are we going to live more with a concept of God um, like this? (laughs) Well, talking of caterpillars, let me tell you a story. Any of you remember this book? The Very Hungry Caterpillar. I just checked the other day, I went into our office um, where everyone there pretty much was younger than me because I thought maybe, maybe it's fallen out of fashion, but I'm told that this is still quite a well-known book. Yeah? Do you remember the story? Should we read the story of The Very Hungry Caterpillar? <laughs> the Very Hungry Caterpillar. In the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. Oh, there we go. One Sunday morning, the warm sun came up, and pop, out of the egg came a tiny and very hungry caterpillar. I should have been on Jack and Ori. He started to look for some food. On Monday, he ate through one apple, but he was still hungry. My finger's too fat to go through the hole. But you could see the little caterpillar coming through otherwise. On Tuesday, he ate through two pears, but he was still hungry. On Wednesday, he ate through three plums, but he was still hungry. On Thursday, he ate through four strawberries, but he was still hungry. On Friday, he ate through five oranges, but he was still hungry. On Saturday, he ate through one piece of chocolate cake, one ice cream cone, one pickle, one slice of Swiss cheese, one slice of salami, one lollipop, one piece of cherry pie, one sausage, one cupcake, and one slice of watermelon. (laughs) And that night, he had a stomachache. The next day was Sunday again. The caterpillar ate through one nice green leaf. And after that, he felt much better. Now, he wasn't hungry anymore, and he wasn't a little caterpillar anymore. He was a big, fat caterpillar. (laughs) He built a small house called a cocoon around himself. He stayed inside for more than two weeks. Then he nibbled a hole in the cocoon, pushed his way out, and he was a beautiful butterfly. (laughs) 
Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what is right. Blessed are those who are hungry for what is right, because they will be filled. Romans 14, 17 says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is all to be found in the Holy Spirit. The rule and reign of God, God having his way, God being in charge, you submitting your life and doing whatever he wants you to do, you living as an obedient child of God is all to be found in the Holy Spirit. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and verses 9 to 14. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. John chapter 6 and verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And John 7, 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me... As scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You see, the thing about this caterpillar was that he was compelled by his hunger. His hunger was what drove him. He kept going and going and going because he was hungry and his destiny was fulfilled because of his hunger. He became all that he was supposed to become because of his hunger. And he was compelled. It drove him. He, he didn't like, you know, don't take this analogy too far. Um, but, but he wasn't like, you know, what are the rules? You know, I've got to it. He was driven by a hunger that drove him, that led him towards his destiny. 
Jesus said that you are blessed when you hunger and you thirst after righteousness, when you long for his righteousness, when you long for his kingdom, when you long for his glory. That's when you're blessed. Not when you're striving and yearning for your own success and your own fulfillment, pursuing your own plan, because that's the way you used to live. That's your old life when it was all about you, when you were in charge, when it was about your kingdom. That's the life that you turned away from. And you said, it won't be about me anymore. I'll die to that old life. And I'll find a new life in Jesus. And he'll be at the center. The trouble is, sometimes we go back to living that old life and we don't even realize it because we spiritualize it. And we pray prayers all about getting what we want in our lives that are all about us. And we turn our relationship with God into some kind of, you know, magical benefactor who can give us whatever we want in life. But actually, we turned away from it being about us, and we said, actually, our true meaning and purpose is in you, because my identity is a child of God. I'm no longer about me. I am a child of God. And so everything that is true about me is now defined in terms of my relationship with you. It's all about you. It's all about us laboring together in your business, in your plan, and your purpose. I've turned away from it being about me. And a hunger and a thirst for his plan and purpose is supposed to consume us. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that you worry about, let him take care of those. But seek first hunger and thirst after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now that kingdom is to be found in the spirit. So it therefore makes sense that we would be saying hunger and thirst after the spirit of God. Not just for the experience, although that's okay. I want to experience him. When I encounter him and I experience him, it reminds me and encourages me and and hits me in the face with the fact that God is real and he's here. And of course I have to hold on to his word and believe it even when I don't feel like it. But those times when I do feel like it sure do help me when I encounter the times when I don't feel like it. So we don't despise the encounter and the experience. We long for the encounter and the experience. But it's not just for the sake of the experience, but we long for the Spirit because the Spirit is the hope of His kingdom being outworked in my life. The Spirit is who will transform me and shape me and enable me to be all that God has called me to be. Because this kingdom that I'm hungry for is found in the Holy Spirit. And so I hunger and I thirst. And Jesus says, if you hunger and you thirst for Him, then you will be satisfied. You will be filled. You will be filled and you will become a beautiful butterfly. You'll fulfill... No, (laughs) not really. (laughs) Just for the avoidance of any doubt, it's a metaphor. (laughs) It's like the new King's Church doctrine. (laughs) 
we're all waiting for our adoption as butterflies. <laughs> you will fulfill, you will be who you were created to be. For they will be filled. But do you know what your reward will be? It'll be the kingdom. It'll be the kingdom. So we get so confused, don't we? The Bible tells us that we should not be deceived because God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And this truth of sowing and reaping is an eternal truth. It's the way God has made things. What you sow, you will reap. But we turn that around and we try to use that to live old self-centered lives where if I sow this, I'll get a new watch. If I sow this, I'll get a really nice car. Sowing and reaping works because it's a truth. If you sow, you will reap. The whole point of what he was saying was if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap the things of the Spirit. If you sow to the kingdom, you will reap the things of the kingdom. And that's supposed to excite you. Not, oh, do you know what? If I sow, that, if I just go through with these rules, if I go through these things that I don't really want to do, but I'll do them because I'll get good old worldly fleshly living as a reward. It's broken. It's not what we're supposed to be driven by. Oh, Lord, reward me with some of the old life that I died to, that was crucified with Christ. It's, Lord, I long for your kingdom. I long for your righteousness. I long to see your glory fill the earth. I long to see healing. I long to see deliverance. I long to see provision. I long to see the poor provided for. I long to see the hungry fed. I long to see lives filled with hope and grace and hope for the future. I long to see justice done. I long to see the lonely put in a family. I long to see those who are oppressed set free. I long for these things because this is what we long for together, Lord. Because this is your kingdom that you're bringing to fill the whole earth. And we're supposed to be hungry for it. We're supposed to be thirsty for it. We're compelled by the love of God. We're compelled because this love is so amazing. This fatherhood is so amazing. I get to be a son. You get to be a daughter. You get to be a son. And you love that. It's amazing what Jesus has done. It's amazing. The love of God at work in our world is amazing. And it drives you. It compels you. You're hungry and you're thirsty. And so it's not, I can do anything. I can go anywhere. I can do anything. But this, this love, this spirit of God... I'm under an obligation. I have to live a certain way. John chapter 14. I don't know where we got the idea in the church that being in the new covenant under grace meant we didn't have to be radical anymore. Grace of God is the most radical thing that there ever was. John chapter 14 and verse 15. I love this. If you love me, keep my commands. I mean, that's enough, isn't it, right? There we could stop. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Be compelled by the love of Christ. If you love me, keep my commands. Well, aren't they more like suggestions? Aren't they more like, you know, you're under grace now, I can do what I want. No, I make commands. 
I make demands on your life. I tell you what you should do. I tell you what's right and what's wrong. And if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. This is the gospel. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I'm in my Father, and you are in me, and I'm in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's how we can, that's the evidence of our love for God, that we are obedient. That's the, Jesus says, not me, it's Jesus. Jesus says, the evidence of your love for God is your obedience to him. See, the evidence, you see, you didn't love God first, he loved you. And he loved you so much that he pursued a father-son, father-daughter relationship with you. So when you become a son or when you become a daughter, you become obedient. So the evidence that you have received the love of God and become his child is in your obedience. Make sense? Jesus Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. So even Jesus, I mean, I was just saying, it's not me, it's Jesus. And even Jesus is saying, it's not me, it's my father. Um, (laughs) All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid, because we could be afraid at this point, couldn't we? We could be like, oh my goodness, have I ever loved God? Because if I love God, I'm obedient. But he says, peace. Don't let your hearts be afraid. You're not to be motivated by this fear of a foot that's about to cross you. The God who loves you and transforms you. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it appears, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. And so he carries on. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burn. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, 
ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He loves you. The same love that exists between the Father and the Son, God extends to you. God loves you with the same love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. The same intensity and intimacy of love, he invites you into that relationship. That's enough for us to spend weeks flat on our faces before God in itself. If we truly can grasp that, that he invites you into the same love relationship that exists within the Godhead. As the Father has loved me, I've loved you. It's incredible. But then he says, now remain in my love. Now that is conditional on us and not on him. Okay? He's not saying, I'm going to take my love away from you. He's saying, you have to learn to live in that love. You have to choose to remain in that love. He will love you unconditionally. He will never take his love away from you. Scripture says, even if you are faithless, he will remain faithful. He will always, always, always love you. He will never stop loving you. He will never stop being for you. And yet he says to you, choose to remain in that place. He loves every non-Christian, doesn't he? I don't know, there could even be someone here this morning who's never made that decision to follow Jesus, and he loves you now. He loves you now. Before you make any decision, he loves you. He pursues you because he loves you. But we know that before we make that decision, we're not living in that love. We're not living in the good of that love. So there's something that depends upon us. And Jesus says, now remain in my love. And, and this, is, this gets us. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. If. If you keep his commands, you will remain in his love. He won't stop loving you if you're disobedient. He will not stop loving you. He will always love you. But if you want to remain in his love, You've got to be obedient. If you want to remain in his love, you've got to be obedient. Nothing's going to stop him from loving you, but to live in that love, to live in the good of that love, you've got to be obedient. Just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, not so that I can wipe you out and make you afraid, and be mean and horrible to you. I've told you this, he says, so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. I want you to know joy. I want you to know joy in the Holy Spirit because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want you to be filled with joy. So I'm telling you how to live a life of joy. Live as a child of God. And that means obedience. That means keeping the commands of God. My command is this, and so he goes on. Jesus says, if you want to live in the love of God, then there are obligations. There is a way that you have to live your life. And so you live your life compelled by the love of God. Not compelled by law, not compelled by legalism, not compelled by dead religion, but compelled by a real living and active relationship of intimacy, of connection with God himself. 
Because Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of you. And in this love relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son, by the Holy Spirit, you live a life that is compelled. You live a life of obligation, but not some dreary obligation, not some onerous set of duties, a list that you have to tick off, but a life in relationship where nevertheless you say, actually, I'm in one sense less free than I used to be. I'm totally free. I'm totally and completely free. But actually that freedom in Jesus Christ actually means that I more want to follow him than would ever have been possible outside of this relationship. Obedience is not the opposite of love or freedom. Obedience is not the opposite of love or freedom. So Galatians 5 13. Galatians 5.13 says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You are called to be free. I don't think that means just use your freedom to serve yourself. Use your freedom to do what God made you to do. 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. For we did not follow... Sorry, 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. But he was rebuked... No, I'm in 2 Peter. I will find it eventually. 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, live as God's slaves. It's incredible. You're free. You're no longer a slave to fear. God says, I don't want you slaving away from me. I want you living as a son. Jesus said something very interesting. He said, I no longer call you servants but I call you friends, because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I reveal to you everything that the Father is doing. He says, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. But this is the thing, he didn't say, you're not a servant, he just said it's not your identity. I don't call you that. Your primary identity is you're a son, you're a daughter. And as a son and as a daughter, you willingly submit and serve your master. You're a slave of God. Paul, again and again and again in the scripture, introduced himself as a slave, a bondservant of Christ. We're slaves of God, but we're happily and willingly not forced into something, but we are compelled by love. Mm -hmm. This incredible love relationship with God that pushes us, that draws us. It's like a hunger that draws that caterpillar and eats and eats and eats and eats. And we need to be those who long for God, who pursue him with a hunger and a thirst. More of you, Lord. More of you. More of your spirit. More of your presence. More of your spirit working in my life. Change more in me, Lord. 
Change, transform me more, Lord. Show me more things that need to go. Show me more things that get in the way. Show me how I can pursue you more, Lord, because I'm hungry. I want your kingdom. I want your righteousness. I want righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to embrace more of what you're doing in my life. Not because I resent some list of rules or obligations, but nevertheless, I am compelled. I'm in love with God. You know, people who are in love, they will go to great lengths and they will do almost anything when they're driven by love. We need that kind of relationship with God that we're running after him because he has loved us with such an irresistible love. That's why our worship is so important. That's why our worship is so important. Why it's so important that we spend time lingering in the presence of God because as we worship him, it stirs and provokes more love for him in us. You know what it's like if you've not prayed for several days, it gets harder and harder to start. If you've not worshipped him for a while, it becomes easier and easier to become lukewarm and then cool and then cold as you drift away. But when you start to worship again, when you start to praise him again, when you start to remember how good he is, that hunger is reignited inside of you. We have to hunger and thirst after God. And fall more and more passionately in love with him. And that's why we are rooted and established in love. And the love of God compels us. If we can, um, I don't know quite where you are. I'm supposed to hand over to you now for discussion. Um, We've got some scriptures here. I don't know if, if maybe you could use them. I don't know. Because I was going to go through them, but I've run out of time. So, um, so anyway, leave that on the screen because it might help. Until he, Have you got another slide you're going to put on? Write them down. Write them down. Write them down. Because we're children, because we're children of God. So the thing about God as our Father, he gives us an identity. He tells us who we are. It's exciting. We don't go back to our old way of life. But we're excited about living our true identity as children of God. Good idea, Ben. Take a photo. <laughs> we, don't, we don't say, oh, fantastic. God's got me off the hook. That's an old mentality. God's got me off the hook. I didn't get punished. I got a few scraps of meat to to live on. I've gone back to being a hired worker, doing the minimum that's necessary to get through and get by. We've been saved for so much more. We've been saved for a radical and passionate life based on the love of God. And the love of God is able to achieve far more in us than ever we could live by law or duty. But if... You're not living the way that God wants you to live. It is an indication, my friends, that something is wrong in our relationship with God. And there is more for us to encounter of his love. And if you are right now at a point where you are stuck in sin, where there's something that maybe there's some repeated cycle, maybe you're frustrated, maybe there are things you keep doing and you're kind of warring away, God does not condemn you. God does not wipe you out, but he calls you to repentance. He calls you to turn away again. 
to say, that is not the life I want to live. But I want to live the life that I was made for. I want to live a life of love with you, where I'm passionately and radically committed to you. Because I want to be part, my dream is to be part of a church of people who are madly and passionately and radically in love with Jesus. A people who have a revelation of the love of God, who know how much God loved them, who know how much God ran towards them and embraced them, who see the cost of that love, who see the price that was paid as a result of that love, and who respond to that love by loving God with all that we are that pursue him and radically run after him, that doesn't say we'll go to church and we'll do our bit and we'll, we'll go through the motions and because we were brought up as a Christian, we'll kind of do what we're supposed to do on a Sunday, but people who are affected by this love, who love Jesus, who run after Jesus, who hunger and thirst, and God's promise to that people is you will be filled. You will be satisfied and you will see the transformation that is supposed to take place in your life because you were driven, you were compelled by this love that God had birthed in you. Amen? Babs.